Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we welcome to the show Sarah Rathner from NerdWallet to talk all things credit cards as well as broader financial media. As Financial Literacy Month continues, stick around. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to Check Your Balances, everybody. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and partner, Dan Maseka, and we have a wonderful guest joining us today for our show. Sarah Rathner, the credit card queen from NerdWallet, is here. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us today. Thank you. I think you just gave me a promotion. That's not my normal title, but I'm royalty now, and I love it. <laughs> you are. No, I, I mean, you, you're the credit card expert, so I, no, I figured uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and assign that title for you. Oh, thank you so much. I will I will let my boss know. <laughs> credit card queen was also my wife's nickname for what it's worth. <laughs> that feels like more of a judgment title when you assign it to your wife, Dan. I don't I don't know if that's uh the intended consequence. It was. It sounds like she might be using them in a way that makes you uncomfortable <laughs> and not uh... We're we're long past that. Thankfully, those days are in the past. Glad to hear it. Well, uh, Sarah, we asked you to join us today really to talk about a couple different topics, uh, credit cards really being the first one. Um, and then I think we'll, we'll probably wander from there. But uh, as somebody that has professionally evaluated probably dozens, if not hundreds of cards, uh, can we start with just what are the key things you're looking for when you take a look at a card and, and uh, what sticks out to you first? Yeah, I always look at the cost of carrying the card compared to the dollar value of any benefits you can get out of the card that you actually plan on using. Because if a card offers a benefit and you're never going to use it, that dollar value doesn't really mean anything to you. So the cost of the card, the big ones, annual fee and interest rate. That's huge. And that could be hundreds of dollars a year. It could be thousands of dollars a year. And then the dollar value of the benefits, depending on what you're looking for, that's the points that you could stand to earn and redeem it's other perks like a statement credit for travel, a statement credit for global entry, which is worth $100 right off the bat every five years. So you want to weigh those two things together and hope you come out positive. Yeah. And, and I've, got, I've got, I think, five cards personally. I'm sure you've explored many more than that. How many is too many? Because you said something in that response that I think is interesting, which is that you plan on using. Right, you can only use so many credit cards at a time. How how many do you think most people should be carrying with them? There's no exact number because what's really important is that you feel comfortable managing the number of cards that you have. So, if that means that you only want one card ever and that's how you sleep at night, then that's great. That's what you should do. But if you can juggle four, five, six cards at a time, pay all your bills on time, avoid credit card debt if possible, even optimize what sorts of rewards you can earn, then then that's good too. You know, you, it's okay. And I mean, I've had as many as probably 10 cards open at the same time. They're not all ones that I have in regular rotation because a lot of them I pick based on very specific spending. So I know one way a lot of people interact with credit cards for the first time is with store cards. 
And those can be very tempting because you're sitting there getting ready to check out and then they throw this exciting offer at you saying, you know, if you apply for this card, you can get whatever benefit on your purchase today. Uh, what do you say to people who are considering those kinds of cards or um, maybe carrying multiple? So store cards can be a little bit easier to get if you have fair credit or you've a relatively short credit history. So they can be sort of an entry into building credit for a lot of people. So it's that's a good thing. Uh, but it's, it's never a decision you want to make on the fly. When you're paying for an item and a sales clerk is pressuring you to <laughs> sign up for a card right now so you can save 10% on your purchase, you can always take the brochure they hand you, go home, think about it, and apply for the card later on after you've had some time to consider, you know, is this a store that I shop at regularly? Are these discounts meaningful for me? If it's not going to save you a lot of money in the long run, then it's just not worth applying for. There are other cards you could choose from. You know, I, I have to admit something since we're talking about credit cards. I was one of those pushy salespeople at one point in my life. I, uh, I, from the time I was about 16 to like 2021, I worked for Eddie Bauer in, in the mall. And I was one of those like, open your credit card here and save 10% guys. And uh, not that their card was any probably better or worse than anybody else's. I don't, I don't think it was an evil product, but I do uh, sort of hate that I was, I was one of those people constantly pressuring people to open one to save, you know, a few bucks on, on a purchase that probably or at least hopefully wasn't that meaningful for them. Right. And, you know, there, there might be uh, quotas that store employees have to fill. And I respect that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, nobody is more of an expert about your own situation than you. So go home and think about it. And it could be that applying for that card really is a good move for you because you shop at that store a lot. But don't make these sorts of impulse decisions when it comes to credit cards or really any financial product. We got a $1 bonus. That was my incentive as a salesperson was literally $1 per card opened. That I mean, honestly, it was really just a pat on the back. But but when I think about like how much work and how much pride we put into like doing that work for a dollar that uh, that now seems a little bit silly. <laughs> yeah, I think looking back on it, I don't know if I would want to, for just a dollar, force that sort of decision on another person. No, no, it, 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 it's, yeah, it's terrible in hindsight, I, you know, but whatever, you, you, you know what you know now and, and uh, you can't go back. But um, so, you know, we talk about all these point values. And I think one of the things that I get confused about, uh, even as somebody that, that reads about this quite a bit, is how to compare the point values. When I'm looking between an American Express card versus a Chase card versus a, a maybe something with an airline, I see huge headline numbers on these point bonuses, but I don't really know how to compare them. How do you go about that? You really want to think about the value uh, per point. So on average, we've found that typically points are worth one penny a piece. So if you have a 50,000 point bonus, you're looking at about $500 in value. And that's the average. There are some cards that offer higher values per point, especially when you redeem for specific things. And then there are cards that have lower values per point. And so you might see this like 125,000 point bonus, but that's actually still only worth $500. So those are, you know, 50,000 versus 125,000, you're still getting the same dollar value out of both. But but where do you find that before you get the card? Is is there something you can look at? Do they have to publish that point value somewhere? 
it can be hard to dig up at times, and I read the fine print for a living, so this is something I search for all the time, all day. Uh, so there are a couple of ways. Sometimes in the marketing, they'll say, oh, earn a point, you know, or, or earn a bonus of $60,000, that's worth $600 when redeemed for travel. Mm. Right there, you're thinking, okay, well, what's it worth when I redeem for cash back or something else? It could be a sign that that's worth something lower because they're not marketing it. And so that's when you go into the terms and conditions, look up the rules surrounding the rewards program and see, you know, what can I redeem for? Are gift cards an option? Is merchandise an option? Is cash back in the form of statement, you know, a statement credit an option? And then they might tell you within that section the point value. Um, some sites have calculators too, where uh, you can actually look up your different redemption options and it can tell you how far will 10,000 points go if you were to get a gift card. And that's a good way to see you know, how far your points could go, really. And so you do want to look that up. And I mean, that's another thing that's really important is just point values are useless if you don't think you'll ever redeem them. It's not like currency. It doesn't, you know, your, 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 your bank account of points doesn't mean anything if they just sit there forever. So a big part of earning points is also recognizing whether or not you're able to redeem them easily. So Sarah, I feel seen when you say that because I, I'm, I, I've got kind of two premium cards uh, that, that I carry personally right now. And it's almost like I have pride in how many points I've accumulated, but I'm really not using them. I think, I think I've done a couple small redemptions, but I've got something like 400,000 Chase UR points right now. And it's, it's ridiculous and it's so silly. And in my mind, I, I like watching that number go up. I'm almost watching it like an investment account, like with pride, like, yeah, there's 400,000 points in there. And at the same time, that probably means I spent some actual cash on things that I could have used points for, uh, and I just didn't think to do it. Yeah, I am also sitting on what is probably an unholy number of Chase Ultimate Rewards points right now. I mean, it's just because like nobody's been traveling this past year, all these vacations I would have taken. We cashed in a bunch to go to South Africa in August of 2020, and I'll let you know we did not go. <laughs> that, that got canceled. Um, and we had transferred them to United to book flights on United Partners, and so now we got them back in the form of United Points. So now we're sitting on Chase Points and United Points, and we're not using any of them right now. So I feel you. Um, I've actually switched to a lot of cashback cards this year just as a result of you know not being able to travel. But um, we are finally starting to cobble together some trips for later on. Um, and, and it is nice to have that pool of points available because then you can sort of piecemeal a vacation together. It's like, okay, I'll use this points on the rental car and this points on this hotel and this point, you know, we're flying two different airlines and like we have points for both. So we were able to get, you know, huge discounts on the flights and eventually you'll be able to leave the house again, I hope, and, uh, cash in some of those points that's worth a lot of money. So go travel. Look, I'm looking forward to that. There's definitely a psychological aspect to accumulating those points because it's almost like giving you permission to do something that you might not spend money on otherwise. Yeah, it's almost like creating a budget for vacations when it comes to travel points specifically. Cashback is different because it's literally money. My thing with cashback cards, I was pretty new to using them on a regular basis in 2020. And with most of these cards, you have to accumulate about $25 worth of cashback to redeem for either a statement credit or a direct deposit to your bank account. And uh, some of them have sign-up bonuses that are worth a couple hundred bucks. So I earn the sign-up bonus and I'm sitting on like $300 worth of cashback in my account on the card. And it's not money. It's literally like the right to redeem for $300 worth of cash back. 
And it, in my head, it was like, well, I should probably have, you know, like $500 worth before I do anything. And why? Like, there's no point. It's money. Like, so now I hit the $25 mark and I redeem and I get a statement credit because it's, it's my money. Like, I should get it sooner. You know, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow, et cetera. So I might as well get that money now. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Well, so, so uh, let's talk about one of the more vocal critics about credit cards in general and the industry. And I've got multiple issues with him, but uh, let's talk about Dave Ramsey. Uh, so Dave Ramsey talks about the credit card as essentially a dumb product. Nobody should be using these. Why would anybody borrow money for these things that we're, we're spending? Um, what, what's your take on somebody that takes such like a staunch line against essentially a huge industry where people are getting a lot of benefit out of using these cards. And, and if you're using them smartly, I think you're, there's, there's plenty of benefit to be had. Yeah. I, I, I mean, obviously I don't agree. I write about credit cards for a living. Credit cards and I have, have become friends. No, um, you know, I think that's just a very extreme view and it does discount a lot of the potential benefits. Credit cards themselves are not evil. Um, it's how you use them and it's how you understand them. And it is very possible to get deeply in financial trouble with credit cards. Absolutely. And you should absolutely be careful and, and recognize how high those interest rates can be and how much that can cost you over time. Yes, like, absolutely. That being said, they also, they make it easy to finance purchases in the short term. They are convenient. They offer a lot of consumer protections, things like price protection, purchase protection. If you're, you know, if, if you order something online and it gets stolen off your porch and the merchant won't refund your money, your credit card company will. A lot of them offer some form of travel insurance at no additional cost to you. There are lots of benefits with credit cards. And if your credit card number gets stolen and somebody steals from you, if they do that to your debit card, you are liable potentially for more of the stolen money the longer you take to report the, the, the theft. And it takes longer for the investigation to be completed before you get your money back. And that money is gone from your checking account, which means if you have bills due, you don't necessarily have the cash on hand because your debit card was stolen. Your credit card gets stolen, you get the money a lot faster, and most credit cards have zero liability. So if you report a theft you will get all of your money back. And the money was never taken out of your bank account in the first place, so you still have cash. So those consumer protections are really important. And so, yeah, I disagree. When I've seen the extended warranty pieces and the travel protection pieces, you know that that's always uh, one of those things where I read that and in my head I go, yeah, that's a good thing. I'm glad that that's there. But I've never used it. I've never had to call that in. And I'm just curious, do you have any experience with people that have had to use those travel protections? And how how easy are the card companies to deal with? And I'm sure it varies depending on who it is. But um, have you seen people actually exercise those and, and use some of those benefits? I have not had to use uh, the travel protections personally. Uh, I was faced with a pretty major flight delay once. And I did call Chase because that was the card that I used to book the flight. And um, you do have to wait for like a 12-hour delay before that kicks in. And it, was, it had only been six hours. So he was like, well, let me know if you end up staying overnight because, you, can, you know, your flight keeps getting – it was like delayed because like of a plane repair thing. And um, so I have not had to use that myself. Uh, I imagine it's probably pretty similar to filing any sort of insurance claim where you do have to provide proof and receipts. So if you are faced with a situation where your bags get lost or damaged – 
uh, you want to be able to provide proof of the value that you've lost. And then they, you know, start the investigation and come to some sort of decision and compensate you accordingly. And there are limitations, obviously. There are limitations on the dollar amount of coverage you get. There are limitations on the reasons you might get coverage. So a big topic this year was travel insurance for obvious reasons. Lots of people canceling and postponing trips. Uh, a lot of the credit card travel protections and frankly, a lot of travel insurance policies in general won't cover you if you cancel a trip out of fear of a pandemic. Fear is not a reason. If you become ill and have to quarantine and your doctor orders you to quarantine or you have to cut your trip short and come home, then that's a covered reason and that's something you can file a claim for. Yeah, I, I learned that lesson the hard way with uh, some Vail uh, lift tickets. I had bought the insurance protection on them just in case I wasn't able to travel. And so this was for the 2019-2020 the season. And I got two days in at Breckenridge and then everything shuts down. So I didn't get to make my second trip back. And I filed the claim on it and they were like, oh, yeah, no, that that doesn't count. You haven't met any of the covered reasons. They ended up providing a credit towards if you'd bought another lift ticket. But I didn't think I was going to be able to go back this this year either. And so it ended up not helping me. But um, I, I definitely got bit by something similar to that. And that, that, I think that's why I asked the question, because um, it's always one of those things where you don't know how it's going to go until you actually go through the process. Yeah, unfortunately, like you're you're going through this process means you're really stressed out and you're dealing with a lot of decisions to make at the last minute. You might not be made completely financially whole, but even a partial refund is something. And it can also help go a long way, you know, in keeping you loyal to that credit card, too, because you feel like they're on your side. So I feel the way a lot of people end up with their credit cards is because the offer is presented to them. It's in front of their face, either at a bank or at a, a store or something like that. To get the best credit card for you, what are some helpful resources where someone can go to where they don't have to spend hours and hours searching the Internet? Well, obviously, NerdWallet is great. <laughs> Uh, and I don't just say that because I work there. I used it long before I started working here. Uh, but we have really great credit card comparison tools that will help you decide and really whittle down the list of from thousands of options to just a handful of options. So it makes it a lot less intimidating. I find that you never want to look at the entire universe of credit cards because, first of all, a lot of them are not just going to be they're just not going to be right for you. And anytime you're picking a financial product, it's it's so intimidating and so difficult you really want to make this decision easy. So it's a lot easier to pick between three or five credit cards than it is to pick between three to 500 credit cards. So uh, I would start there. And yeah, definitely pay attention to things you get in the mail, pre-approval offers, things like that. There are th Those are good ways to get potentially bigger sign-up bonuses than are offered on a credit card site. So if you get something in the mail, compare it to what you see online. Um, God, I mean, I haven't seen this in a long time, but you know those like, credit card offers you get on planes that like the flight attendant has to go on. Don't sign up for those. <laughs> I literally, the last time I was on a flight, um, they woke me up from a nap and I don't sleep well on planes. So I was already angry about that to give the, the spiel about the credit card. And the woman sitting across the aisle from me actually filled out an application and then left it on her tray table for like four hours. And I could clearly read her social security number and home address and birthday from where I was sitting. And like, I'm not going to steal her identity. So she was lucky she was sitting across the aisle from me. But you're putting a lot of personal information out there in a public place. And then you hand it to a flight attendant and you don't know what they do with it, uh, where they hand it in and where it goes after you're done. So 
I have heard from readers who have applied for credit cards on planes and then never received the cards and there was no record of their application. So it's like, cool, where did that piece of paper go? I would say if you hear about a good deal on a flight, wait till you get home. On a secured Wi-Fi, don't look this up and apply on the airplane Wi-Fi or at the airport. When you're home, look up the car deal and see if it's a good deal for you. Yeah, be- being on a plane, that's not where I want to make a financial decision. I'm tired, I'm stressed, I'm traveling. And then they're like, hey, do you want some you know, American airline points? And you're like, no, I want I want you to get out of my way and let me get off this plane so I can go wherever I needed to go. Yeah, yeah. Again, I just want a nap. Like limit the PA announcements to like safety stuff and gate connections, you know, relevant information. <laughs> It's it's also like an uncomfortable moment where they ask and like nobody's answering, right? Which I'm sure they're used to. But as you're sitting there like in a essentially a long tube of people that aren't interested in the product and everybody's just staring back at them like, can you please stop this? Yeah, it's like one of those it's like one of those timeshare presentations where everyone's just there for like the free breakfast. Totally. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. I I get that sense of it. So you mentioned earlier store cards are a great way to get one of your first credit cards if you're looking to build credit. One of my first jobs was at a bank, and what I saw a lot was parents coming in with their children to apply for joint credit cards because the kids couldn't get credit cards on their own. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so they were probably adding their kids on as authorized users, which is a potential way to ride the coattails of somebody else who has really strong, responsible credit habits and an excellent credit score themselves. So it can be very good. And it's frankly, a lot of parents give their kids a leg up by adding their kid as an authorized user, taking that extra credit card, hiding it in a drawer somewhere, never letting their kid use it. And then you know, by the time the kid is 21 and old enough to apply for their own card, they have their own source of income, they have pretty good credit. And that's a great way to start out in life. It opens a lot of doors when you're applying for a rental apartment, trying to get a cell phone plan, signing up for utilities, things like that. Good credit isn't just for buying a house or a car, it's for all of these other things too. So that can work very well, but you do want to be careful. First of all, you want to hitch your wagon to a horse, for lack of a better metaphor, that uses credit responsibly. So if you are the authorized user, you don't want to be the authorized user to somebody who is racking up lots of debts, paying their bills late, racking up late fees. That can drop their credit score, have a negative effect on your credit score. So Pick your person carefully. If you're the primary cardholder, you should know that you're responsible for the bills. So if the authorized user is carrying the card and using it, you should set a budget with them and have really firm talks about that. Maybe even work out a plan where they use your card and then they pay you back for whatever they spend on the card, especially if they go over a certain budget. So if you're giving your kid, your teenager, a credit card, you're going to want to communicate with them about what they can spend. Yeah, I also think that just being aware, and and I, I tend to be hyper aware of kind of watching my charges. I I, I think it, I would notice within a couple days anything fraudulent on my accounts because I, I just watch it. I, I'm on you know a couple of these aggregator sites quite a bit. You, if you're the type of person that doesn't really look at the bill and just sort of pays it at the end of the month, or you're sharing household expenses uh, with a spouse, you know that it could easily start having things slip in there that that you're not aware of. I could see that being being an issue if you're not a, as focused on it. Right, and when it comes to maybe disputing a charge that you thought was made in error, a charge made by an authorized user on your card, you can't dispute that right. because they're allowed to use your card. So if your kid racks up a ton of money buying stuff online. 
can't go to your credit card company and say, well, I didn't, I, I didn't give permission for that to be charged. Well, you gave permission for somebody to use your account. Wow. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, so I guess to, to put a bow on our credit card segment, and I've got a couple other things I want to ask you about, but what are you seeing in the market? Are there any trends that people should be aware of or, or either looking out for on the positive side or the negative side of, of the industry right now? And, and just kind of what, what's going on in the space. Yeah, you know, 2020 slash first quarter of 2021 has been a fascinating time to keep up with the credit cards industry just because it's just been a fascinating time to keep up with every industry uh, and also a horrifying time. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of interesting things come out of this. Now that there's positive vaccine news, something like a quarter of Americans have received at least their first injection. Uh, we're seeing travel cards coming back in a really big way. Generous sign-up bonuses, new cards coming to the market. People are starting to book travel for later in 2021. People are excited to get back out of the house again. So travel cards are here to you know, entice them to do that, offer these bonuses, make it possible to book discounted travel. So we're going to keep seeing that. We're also seeing... Um, what I like, we, we talked a lot about you know, adding teenagers as authorized users, credit cards for people who are new to credit. We're seeing a lot of really interesting what we call alternative cards come to the market. These are different from your more traditional secured credit cards, which have long since been a way for people to begin using credit cards for the first time if they have no credit history. Alternative cards use non-traditional underwriting, essentially. They don't necessarily look at your credit score. Some of them don't even require a social security number. Some of them don't require uh, that you have a bank account. Um, and, and they look at other things like income and assets when making decisions. So they're interesting options for people who uh, maybe are immigrants to the United States. They don't have a credit history here, but they do have substantial assets. It's a way for them to qualify for credit cards and begin establishing credit history in the United States. Uh, it's also an interesting option for people who have a source of income, don't have a long credit history, maybe people who are in their early 20s just getting started with their careers, and um, they don't want to have a secured card, but they have to put down a cash deposit first. They, they want a card that's more like a typical revolving line of credit. And a lot of these cards also have cash back rewards programs, too. So that's really interesting to see. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, so, you know, I think the other thing I wanted to talk about with you, and, and this is kind of a, a, a little bit of a left turn from, from the credit space in general, but um, as somebody that writes for uh, financial news and, and, and publishes a lot of financial content, we're still pretty new at the podcast thing. Um, the thing that I've found toughest is coming in at the right level for people. And when you're working with an individual, you can gauge a lot of things, right? You can hear uh, if it's over the phone, some of that that audible feedback, or if it's face to face, which you know, hopefully we get back to soon, you can see if people are nodding along, or if you've completely glazed their eyes over as you talk through a financial topic. How do you think about what level to bring your content in, and kind of who are you writing for on average to make sure that it's kind of approachable, but you're also not um, being too basic in in the language? You know, you you write for who your audience is. You think about what we call user intent. What question are they asking or what problem are they trying to solve that led them to find your article? And the hope is that when they're finished reading your article, they have walked away from the experience with an answer to their question. Because when people have a financial question, there are often some negative emotions that might be going on with that. There's a lot of fear, maybe anxiety, guilt, shame. They were worried about making the wrong decision. They're worried about making a choice that will cost them a lot of money. So a, a big part of what I do is, is 
sort of reassure people that we are all going through these decisions all the time and they're not alone. And then providing easy to understand information and potentially action items that they can take to hopefully solve their problem and get what they're looking for. And it's not so much about age as it is life stage, because I mean, we often talk about like, oh, like, you know, people who are 22 are straight out of college. Not necessarily only 36% of Americans have a four-year degree. You might have a 22-year-old who's a homeowner, who's married with children. They're making the same decisions as a 40-year-old homeowner who's married with children. So it's more about seeing people where they are, what life stage they're in, and what decisions they're making. I think that's a great point. So we've mentioned that April's Financial Literacy Month, and we're talking a lot about topics that can help almost everybody. Uh, Our experience has been that people consuming this type of information about financial literacy might be some of the people who need it the least. What should we be doing as an industry to reach more people and improve collective financial literacy? That's a really great question because obviously probably the three of us read about money a lot because it's a topic that we're interested in and therefore a topic that we don't necessarily fear (laughs) because there's a lot of fear when it comes to money. Um, I think a lot of it is um, destigmatizing conversations about money among people that you know, family and friends. Uh, There's a lot of value in non-judgmental one-on-one conversations and Your friends can be your cheerleaders. If you're thinking about applying for a new credit card or asking for a raise at work, applying for a new job, refinancing your mortgage, if you find a trusted friend who's done things like this, they can share their experiences with you and make it a lot less scary. Um, You know, I get a lot of questions about this stuff from my friends. I think I just have one of those faces where people are like, I'm going to tell you my entire financial situation and you're going to tell me what to do. And (laughs) I don't know. I mean, just people open up to me. That's really huge. Uh, You might work with clients with children. I would say if they have older kids, invite them to some of your meetings because that's a good way to help kids who are probably like middle school, high school, college age understand the entire financial puzzle that adults are dealing with so it doesn't quite feel so nebulous to them. A lot of kids don't totally understand. They don't have a full picture of how their parents make financial decisions. I think that if they did have a better picture of this, you know, they'll they'll be more likely to enter adulthood on their own, really getting what it means to be an adult and and have to deal with adult situations around money. Um, there's definitely this perception that like money things are for the rich, especially hiring professional money assistants, whether that's a financial planner or an accountant or some sort of financial coach. But getting the message out there that there are options available for professional help at a variety of price points. Uh, is really important because a lot of, frankly, you know, as I've gotten more mature in my money management and I have brought in professionals to help me with my money, um, I have found that it has really helped me propel my goals. And if you think that that's out of reach for you, then propelling your goals is going to feel out of reach for you too. But there are lots of people out there who are wonderful at what they do, who are there to help people of all different backgrounds. I love that. Yeah. And um, I've, it's been a couple of years since I've done it, but Financial Planning Association does a um, basically a pro bono day where they have CFPs sit down with people in the community just that, that might otherwise feel intimidated or, or uncomfortable. And, you know, th- those types of things uh, I, I think are great. I, I'd like to see more of them. And it's probably on me just to just to look for more of them and more ways to participate. But uh, it's definitely 
hosting this show in our small way is is one of the things that we're trying to do just to to put more content out there that's hopefully approachable. Um, all right. So the last thing, just kind of in the line of financial media, uh, the name of our podcast, Check Your Balances, I think came out of what we think is almost always a debate, right? There's typically two sides to an issue. There, there's there's always a pro and con, and it might be one thing is more aggressive or, or more conservative, but but there are two sides to most of these financial topics. How do you balance that with making like a compelling point where, uh, you know, when, when you get into a lot of these issues, the answer is it depends, but that's also not good radio. It's not good podcasting. It's, it's not necessarily compelling articles to read. Do you feel that tug of war? Oh, all the time. And I, I've joked with a few of my coworkers that it depends is essentially my professional motto. Like if I could have a crest, it would be an image of a woman shrugging and the words it depends written across a ribbon in Latin because that's what I say all the time. Um, there is so much gray in between. And I know that sticking to the black and white makes for much more compelling television, um, but it ignores the nuances of everyone's individual financial situation. Everybody is different. And when you apply a blanket statement to all people, you end up serving no one. It's much more important, I think, to honor all of the in-between and find an answer to your question that makes sense in your life. So uh, again, going back to Financial Literacy Month, uh, is there anything that you think would be good to get out into the world? Any helpful tidbits of financial literacy that you've picked up over your life that you think uh, you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, man, that's a good one. <laughs> what, what a big, broad, wide open, wide open question. Yeah. Oh, God. What have you learned over the last 20 years? That can... <laughs> Um, if I could share one lesson to everyone that is listening, and, and, and I, think of, I think of friends of mine when I say this, it's that there is so much you can accomplish to meeting financial goals in 30 minutes or less that would make a giant difference in your life for the next like 20 or 30 years. Literally sit down, order a pizza. And then while you're waiting for the pizza, set up a bunch of automatic money transfers, open your first brokerage account, look over your credit cards and see if they still work for you. Should you apply for a new one? These types of things are so easy to do online. You could do them from your phone. Like just do them from secure Wi-Fi. That's my rule. Don't do them in a public place, in a coffee shop or whatever. But, you know, and, and when I was 27 years old, I went to a financial planner as a client for the first time. Uh, at the time, I was single, renting an apartment, no pets, you know, not a homeowner, didn't own a car. My life was way simpler than it is now. And it cost, his fee was a month of my rent at the time. And I was like, this, this dude better be worth it. And he listened to, you know, he asked me a bunch of questions, listened to my answers, did his, his magical work in the background. And we met like a couple weeks later and he gave me uh, my financial plan and everything he asked me to do, I sat down and did it on my lunch break. Like, oh, up your 401k contribution by this percent and add this into a high yield savings account every month and set up this automatic thing. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's been 10 years and my life, my financial life, I think is better because I spent a month of my rent and spent 30 minutes doing what he told me to do. And... You don't need to spend a month of your rent to get that advice, but 
taking the time to do that will change your life. It will put you in a better position to do the things you want to do later on, whether that's travel or buy a house or have children or donate to charity generously uh, or move or have the money to get out of bad marriage. That's not my situation, but you know, I mean, like really having that money can literally save your life. And so you owe it to yourself to do those things today. So in 10 years, if you have to do something or you want to do something, then you can. Yeah. I'm thrilled you framed it like that. Uh, because honestly, you know, being a financial planner and having delivered some of that same easy but actionable advice, it drives me crazy when people come back a year later and said, oh, I never had the time to do that. Well, it's pretty simple to do a lot of those things. You just haven't prioritized them over, you know, everything else going on. Yeah, I've worked in financial planning and, and I have sat in on calls with clients where we've literally did a screen share and had them do some of those tasks online in front of us. And so we knew they happened. And it didn't take very long. And everybody was always surprised at how easy they actually were. I love that. I, I think that was great advice for everybody. And, and certainly we appreciate that as planners and, and hope that, that our work does have those types of impacts for people. So uh, re- really appreciate it. Sarah Radner, the newly appointed credit card queen from NerdWallet. We are so appreciative to have had you on the show today. And uh, we've got plenty of other content coming up for the rest of Financial Literacy Month. But, but thank you very much. And uh, we'll, we hope to have you back. Well, you're definitely appointed to my cor- uh, invited to my coronation. <laughs> so <laughs> once you're vaccinated, you can come. I, I get my first one on Friday. Can't wait. Oh, mazel tov. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Sarah. Everybody else, we will see you all next week. Thank you. Mm-hmm.